So, hey, listen, if you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, let's open it up or turn it on um, to John chapter 9, John's Gospel chapter 9. This uh, chapter, I, in full confession, is my favorite chapter of the Bible. I know we're not supposed to say that, but, but it is, somewhat because of the circumstance of it and somewhat because I'm a Newfoundlander and our love language is sarcasm as humor and there is sarcastic humor all in this chapter everywhere. And so for me, when I read John chapter 9, it is very easy for it to me imagine that this was a group of Newfoundlanders and how they would have talked to each other and dealt with this. And so I really do this. And what I thought I would challenge you with as we approach Christmas and the end of another year and the beginning of a new one, as we kind of come out of COVID, kind of, and I know that's said with trepidation, But as we look to either normal or a new normal, as you all have experienced great growth, I mean, this this was about the size of this church the last time I was here. Now you have problems sometimes where you don't have enough chairs, and you are thinking in ways beyond yourselves and what God is going to do with you. So as you think of those things and pray of those things, as you enjoy the blessing of God, I want to ask you this. What's the difference between having blind eyes versus a blind heart? What's the the difference between blind eyes or if you have a blind heart? So I want you to hang on to that as we read the first 12 verses of John chapter 9 together. This is the Word of God. John writes, as he, that's being Jesus Christ, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. If you write in your Bibles, you can highlight that is something you want to take real note and pay attention to. This wasn't just a blind man. He was born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So I want you to realize these guys took note that this was a guy born blind. They knew that. So this man must have had a reputation. He was known to the disciples and the fact that he was born blind. Now watch. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now he addresses his disciples. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now that would have resonated because he had just said that a chapter earlier. It's one of the great seven I am statements of the Gospel of John. And having said this, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And again, you need to realize this is connecting chapter 8 to chapter 9, because in the great feast of tabernacles that had just happened, there were two important things. There was four torches, but the water they used in that entire feast was all from the water of Siloam. So these are not just random things. All of this is strung together. Then he says, so he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, don't you like how anticlimactic John is here? Like, he, he was blind, he washed, now he sees. Like, it doesn't seem like when we sing Amazing Grace, don't we? Like, you know, I once was lost, but now I was blind, but now I see, right? He goes even further the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. 
And he kept saying, and this is what makes me laugh, I am the man. Like, they're all having a conversation. He's like, hello, I'm, I, I'm right here. Like, I can tell you, I'm the guy. And so they called, so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And I love this question. They said to him, where is he? <laughs> the guy was born blind. He had never seen. And they're like, so where is he? And I love it. He goes, I, I don't know. And that's where I want to end it. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. I wish I had time. When I preached this to my church, I preached actually four sermons out of this, and I just wanted to give you an overview. I had a lot of fun with this chapter because this, this one is just, there's so much here. But as you process the word of God, I want to ask you something. Have you ever been guilty of watching those videos on YouTube, the ones where the baby gets the hearing aids and they're turned on, right? I'm seeing some heads, you know, or the one where dad is colorblind and the family all piled together and got the money to get him those special glasses. And so he opens it up and he can put the glasses on and he sees colors for the first time. Have you ever watched those? Come on now, be honest. Confess the Lord. I'm a sucker for those things, right? Like, I will sit up, I, I'm an early riser, and I'll be downstairs on a Saturday morning, and I just fall into the abyss of these little, you know, heart-tuggy videos, and I'm watching them, and, and I'm, I'm a crier, like, I, I just am, and my wife will get up later and come down, and, and, and I'm doing, and she goes, you were watching those videos again, weren't you, right? Have you ever watched those news articles, and there's been many for us to choose from lately, when a natural disaster has wrecked havoc on an area? And we see a mother clinging to her baby in the water or clinging to her child on a rooftop. Have you seen those ads where we see for our children's hospitals, you know, those cancer hospitals and the soft music? And your, your heart is just drawn to them. And you, 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 I don't know if you have, my, my wife runs an in-house daycare for children under two. And two babies in 20-odd years that stand out to our family, we had two kids that had Down syndrome. And they are the highlight of our family. I mean, they just have a gift to smile, and all of their face smiles, right? And how can you not just find that infectious? But now contrast all the emotions you're feeling right now. As you've thought about those videos, those articles, all those things, as I was driving to meet Levi and Ron, yesterday, and I drove through downtown Aurelia. What do you think when you see that guy that's very dirty sitting outside an entrance with a little Bristol board that says, give me money, and the little coffee cup? What do you think when you see him? Do you have the same type of emotions? Does he make you cry? What happens when you see those guys that stand on the intersections and they kind of walk all around and, or the one that washes your windshield and then hopes that you'll give him some money? Do you ever sit and wonder about his story? Or do you, do you think in terms of, why are you doing this, man? Like, what brought you here? What, what goes through your mind when you see that? You know, John's gospel is very different from the way we would construct a letter because he actually doesn't tell you why he wrote it till the very end. 
all the way back to the back in chapter 20, uh, John says, here's why I have said all of what I've said to you. In John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. John chapter 9, he said, I chose these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So John says, look, the reason I have written this with these seven I am statements and these seven miracles, these seven signs, of which John 9 is one of them, he says, I had a purpose in writing it. I want you, by the end of this, that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that you will mentally believe that, and he says, as a result, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I want you to realize, this is not some random book just where John is saying, let me tell you about this dude that came along and he just messed with all of our, our, our presuppositions and stuff like that. No, I've had an agenda the whole time that you would come to an understanding. Jesus Christ was not just a good teacher, a good guy. He wasn't a political usurper or revolutionary. He was the Christ, the Son of God, and then you'll make a choice. By believing in him, you can have life in his name. So I want us to all come to a decision about Jesus before you leave and we face whatever snow is waiting for us when we get out of here. Because every one of us has to decide not only who Jesus is, but from the youngest of you to the oldest, you have to ask yourself and make a decision, do you trust Jesus? I think one of the great questions of the 21st century in 2022 of Canada is, can we? Can we trust Jesus? I mean, with all that you are celebrating with a baptism and all the things that God is doing for you, when you think about all that's around us, what will we think about? What will we focus on? So as we begin, I want you to realize this man born blind is there for a purpose. It's an object lesson for you and me to learn from. And it had a direct effect on the man. No doubt he was blind, now he sees. But it also had an effect on the disciples, on the crowd, and it's meant to have an effect on you and I. My sermon in a sentence is this. This miracle of Jesus was actually a display of his divine sovereign power. And I think it's important not to say uh, divine power, but divine sovereign power. Because the question was, who sinned, this man or his parents? And then he says, none, but that God may get the glory. So there's something bigger at play here, right? So this was a miracle of Jesus' divine sovereign power given to him by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, all for the glory of God. So if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to see first. Jesus sees the problem. Now I get it. Verse 1 is almost a throwaway verse. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now I don't know about you, but I've been raised around church. My parents came to Christ two weeks apart when I was five. So I've been in church like this practically my entire life. Been reading the Bible, memorizing scripture. I went to a Christian school, went to youth group, went to Awana, got the Timothy Award and the Meritorious Award and all the badges and all that kind of stuff. And so often, familiarity breeds contempt. And we can read our Bible and we can just throw away these verses. But I want you to see, Jesus sees the problem. He's passing by and he sees the blind man. Now, at the risk of sounding like Captain Obvious, he had to see the blind man because the blind man didn't see him. And I want you to think this through with me. 
This man was born blind. He has only known blindness. He didn't once see and became blind. He's only ever known darkness. Darkness for him is normal. It's not foreign. That's his normal. He can't understand any attempt to tell him about a sunset or a sunrise. If you were chatting with him, oh, you should see the sunset. He has no frame of reference. And whatever you would use for words, how would you even begin to describe it? Oh, you don't understand the yellows. You don't under, like, he has no concept. If you said, oh, it's so yellow, he's never seen yellow. He doesn't know what yellow is. Darkness is normal. It's real. Darkness is his life. You don't think John wants you and I to realize? Without Christ, darkness is normal. And I say that to you because, remember, blind eyes versus a blind heart. When we look at the people in Aurelia that are either homeless or addicted or the white-collar sinner who is self-righteous and woke and condescending, and the temptation for us is to look at them and see an enemy when they are simply living out the life that they have to live because darkness is normal. It's the normal way of life. I, I often say this. We shouldn't be shocked when dead people do what dead people do. When I go to a funeral home, I'm not shocked because the person in the casket doesn't respond. In fact, I would be shocked if he did. Remember, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. So why do we act shocked when the world does what the world does? Rather, why aren't we filled with an urgency to say, God, do for others what you've done for me. You took me dead in my sins, in my darkness. I was living my best life. It was a real life to me. It was normal living. And God shocked us into life with his love and his mercy and his grace. And so John wants us to see Jesus is walking by. The disciples, as you're going to see in a minute, see a very different thing than Jesus does. He sees the blind man. He can't see Jesus. He's cut off. The Savior of the world is near him, and he doesn't even know it. And don't lose sight that he is born blind. So do you ever think that he thought anyone can help him? You need to realize in all of the Bible there had been people that were healed of blindness. No one in the history of the Bible was ever healed of blindness who were born blind. This is the one and only place in all of Scripture where someone born blind received their sight. That's why John chose it. This was a messianic sign. This Jesus is doing something that nobody else had done. Other prophets had healed blindness not someone born blind. And remember, chapter 8, he had said, I am the light of the world. He reminds his disciples of it in our passage. So religion has just argued and denied Jesus back in chapter 8, verse 58. So when John has us read chapter 8 and 9, basically he's saying to me, look, watch what the light of the world looks like and take notice of how it affects different groups. So Jesus is not just passing by. He is sovereignly passing by a blind man who was born that way, a beggar who's had a social stigma upon him his whole life. And then watch what happens in verse 2 and 3. 
Because then the disciples have a blind question. You see, Jesus sees a problem. The disciples simply see a question. They see a socioeconomic question. They see a social justice question. They see a theological discussion. Who sinned, this man or his parents? They are like every one of us, aren't they? They're struggling with the why and what of suffering. Don't, don't you do that? I do, I do all the time. I was sharing with someone at the TGC conference. We were talking about pastoral ministry. Before I moved back to St. John's, I lived in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. Pastored a much bigger church there, and it had a very spread out age demographic, and there was a larger seniors population. And for some reason, many of the seniors in my church had gotten Alzheimer's. And so it was one of my tasks every couple of weeks to go to several different Alzheimer's units to visit people that had been part of our church that I had laughed with and done life with. We had done all kinds of things only to walk in and and look into vacant eyes as they either reacted to me in fear or in emotions and they were scared and they were surrounded by others. And my wife knew every time that I would come home that I had visited the Alzheimer's unit because I have been around all kinds of death and disease. And at least for me personally, there's nothing that has made me go, oh, God, why? There is nothing that has made me steer at the horrific effect of a sin-cursed world where our bodies break down than when you see all dignity kind of robbed of our humanity in an Alzheimer's unit. And without fail, many, many times I would go back out of those rooms and I'd sit in my car and tears would roll down my my cheeks and I'd have to recollect myself and I would find myself going, God, why? Why? Why does this have to happen? And so the disciples are wondering, who sinned? But like far too many, even today in 2022, we acknowledge suffering We feel bad about it. We talk about it. We try to imagine why it exists and what should be done about it. But few of us actually do something about it, as in this passage. Only Jesus is both willing and able. When I look at it, I know Brother Ron works for Lighthouse, and as you guys deal with these things, there are many times I am willing to help, but I'm not able. And tragically, there are times I'm able to help, and I'm not willing. But Jesus is the only one who is both willing and able. There is no sin. There is no circumstance. There is no story or past. Whether you're the worst sinner here or the best sinner here, Jesus says the same thing. I am passing by and I see you. For us as professing Christians, if you're here, do you and I, when we look at the suffering of the world, see people or see a theological discussion? Notice, they're thinking in terms of a deed or a disposition. They're saying, who sinned? What did this guy do or what did his parents do? And they're feeding right into today's culture. The disciples said, is this karma? Is this Murphy's Law? Is this revenge? Is this punishment? Is this justice? 
And these are good disciples. They know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They know the warnings of Deuteronomy 6, that if you don't obey God, he will punish you to the third and fourth generation and all these things. They knew about Miriam, the sister of Moses, who was struck with leprosy when she rebelled him and, and all this. But remember, even the guy back a few chapters in John 5 who was healed of his paralysis, Jesus warns him and says, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So I'm not shocked by the disciples' question. In fact, I think you and I need to eat some humble pie and admit we would have asked the same thing. The disciples basically wondered, okay, what did he do to deserve this? What did his mom and dad do? Tell us, Jesus, why are you staring at this guy? What is it that you want us to know? And then watch, notice, Jesus gives a light-giving commission in verses 4 and 5, right? He responds to the disciples, and once again, we're introduced that every passage of the Bible does this. Every passage tells you something of God. It tells you factually what was happening in the moment, but it has a a direct application. So he corrects their faulty theology. He says, it was not that this man sinned in verse 3 or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he says, we must work the works of him. He gives them a commission, but this time it's a light-giving commission. Don't see people in terms of theological paradoxes. See people and see yourself and realize what you have been given, and now will you go and give? Was a D.A. Carson who said, we're only beggars who found food who want to tell other beggars where to find it. Isn't it amazing how quickly professing Christians can be saved? And we can have wonderful stories and testimonies. Borden is going to give his testimony. But I hope my brother will fight what happens to far too many Christians when we have our testimony but we see other people as a problem and we don't see them as the potential testimony that matches ours. So Jesus gives them a light-giving commission. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus wants us to understand God's love and God's holiness. And guys, can I just say, ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to be too, I've got to remember this, mixed company. God is not up in heaven looking down on us going, all right, I can't wait. Just do something wrong, I dare you. And you know what? But that's all too often how we see God. I do. Most of my adult life was thinking if I do good, good things happen to me. And if I do bad, bad things happen to me. The problem is sometimes I do good and bad things happen to me. And what's even worse as a Christian is sometimes I've done bad and good things happen to me. That really messes with your mojo. Because that's not how we see things. To give you an example, I grew up in a very legalistic background. I was raised in an independent Baptist church. I went to an independent Baptist Christian school. And we had this whole demerits detention system. And I was in an ACE school and you used to get these yellow things and green things. And we had letters of the alphabet that said if we were good or bad. And um, we'd have this person that would come by, and I would get detention slips. And every now and then, I would get one, and I knew I was innocent. Well, I couldn't wait when that would happen, because I would run home to my dad and flash this yellow slip in front of him and say, I am innocent. 
and I would expect my father to rear up and go and defend me. And my dad would, in his little tiny voice that he has, say, Stephen, it's true, this time you might have suffered unjustly. But let me ask you, how many times did you get away with stuff and not get caught or punished, and instead you received mercy? And I hated it when dad did that to me. Donald Gray Barnhouse says, God is not up in heaven trying to hit people. Anyone could testify to the fact that many times he or she has sinned and has not reaped the fruits of that sin. God has been gracious in a wonderful way, how tender and how patient he is. I mean, God could have technically said, yes, this man and his parents have sinned because they are all dead in sin as in from Adam. That's not what he says. Romans 5 does tell us that we are all dispositionally sinners. We were born sinners. Again, listen to me. We don't sin our way into being sinners. You didn't, you didn't sin and became a sinner. You are a sinner, thus you sin. Now, it's a wonderful thing. We're doing a baptism and not a baby dedication. I literally was in a baby dedication service where the family comes up, gives this little infant to the pastor, and he took this maybe a little too far even for my comfort, and he held him out like Simba in The Lion King and said, Behold the enemy of God. I'm talking about, talk about suck the air out of a fun event, right? And technically, he's not wrong. I don't promote that particular style. I'm not saying that. But technically, Jesus could have said, yes, he sinned and his parents sinned, just like you've sinned. But Jesus is not saying that. Jesus wants us to see grace and mercy. Look again at verse 3. But that the glory of God could be known. And Jesus is not saying, oh, you need to realize, I struck this guy blind in the womb, had him live for however long he lived, just so I could make a point now. Because I don't know about you, but if that was true, I wouldn't think that would be fair or just either, right? I love the way F.F. Bruce explains this. He goes, this does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that, after many years, God's glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would again be an aberration to the character of God. He goes on to say it does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ and others, and seeing this work of God might turn to the true light of the world, which is what happens by the end of John chapter 9. So Jesus is basically saying, you're looking for a particular deed. I'm telling you, no, dispositionally sin reigns and I have come and everything Satan means to do and all of the stuff that sin robs us for ultimately that is a lot of words for what Paul said in Romans where sin abounds grace does much more abound what they meant for evil I will now bring glory this guy wondered what is the purpose of my life I have been born blind. I'm an outcast. I'm cut off. Nobody even gives me the time of day except to say, that's the dude that sits outside the temple. And God says, no, 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 no. As a time appointed, I will bring my son to you, and I will heal you, and your life will become a testimony now for two millennia. Because here we are in 2022, and we're still talking about a guy born blind. This is what the grace of God can do. 
And so our church, that is you and I, us, this miracle represents the work that God has called Jesus to do, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, Luke 1.79. Isaiah 9.2, those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And so then Jesus gives light-giving healing in verses 6 and 7. He spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, says to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, I want you to think about this guy and the way we view him. How many years did this guy grope in the darkness saying, why me, God? Everybody else can see, but I can't see anything. My whole life I've listened to people talk about what they're seeing, and I can only imagine, and I don't even have memories to aid me in my imagination because I've never seen anything. Why me? Imagine the frustration. Imagine the torment. Now, think about people in Aurelia who are just trying to figure out life and to make sense of it. They're pursuing happiness, trying to find peace, trying to raise a family, trying to live as long as they can live, trying to find some semblance of purpose and value and identity. And don't think for a second that they don't think exactly the way this blind man thought about his blindness. They think about life in general. Because I know you've done it, and I've done it. There was a movie made a number of years ago with Jack Nicholson, and it was called As Good As It Gets. And I always laugh at this movie because I love it when Hollywood can't help itself but be honest. Because if you don't have Christ, this life is as good as it gets. So I'm not shocked when everybody tries to create utopia here. It's all we have. And yet Jesus comes and says, I'll give you something more. This very passage was recently in the news, by the way. Joaquin Phoenix, an actor in Hollywood, recently played Jesus in a movie titled Mary Magdalene. In the interview, he said that this passage was messed up and he refused to act this out. Here's what he said. He actually used profanity and said there's no way he'd do that. It was humiliating. Who rubs mud on someone's eyes? You've got to be kidding me. And once again, we see the difference between blind eyes versus blind hearts. He was offended that Jesus would make mud, rub it on his eyes, and tell him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And again, understand the object lesson Jesus, John, is showing us. Listen, when you are faced with the desperation of your true life circumstances, even when you have to own it, even when sometimes it means you've got to pass through the idea of humiliation, are you desperate enough to go, I don't care what I've got to do, I just want to see And I love it. This guy just goes and does what he's told. And I love that he does that. And he goes and he he does what God asks of him to do. And he says, there's lots of reasons and debate about why Jesus does this. Why make mud? Why put it on his eyes? Why tell him to go wash in the pool of Siloam? In Jesus' day, they said that saliva had healing powers. And that's funny because today we say the opposite, right? We wouldn't say that. 
Some say that by making mud with saliva, Jesus is illustrating that we are made of dust in the earth. Still others think it was to impress upon the man just how blind he was and how bad the curse of sin was. But the reality is we don't know why. Here's what we do know. Jesus tells him to go and wash. The guy does and comes back seeing. That's what we know. We also know that John wants us to connect the pool with the name, sent. The pool of Siloam, right in our passage, in brackets it says, which means sent. This name was given because the water was conducted to or sent by a channel. It's actually there today. If you've ever done a tour of Israel, you can tour what's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And this is how they brought this water. So this miraculous, God-given water for centuries reminded Israel, Messiah will come just as this water has come. So here is the Messiah making mud, putting it on, sending him to the pool of Siloam, and he's announcing to the disciples, he's announcing to Israel, the Messiah is here. Look, I do what no one has done before me and no one will do after me. I am the living embodiment of everything you've longed for and looked for. Just like this blind man who said, I long for sight, and I don't care what it takes, I'll go get my sight, because Jesus said, go and you will. So let me ask you, Christian, is there anything too humiliating for us if God says, go and love, go and forgive, go and offer, go and testify, go? Sometimes to the middle class, sometimes to the lower class, sometimes to that parent who's failed you, sometimes to the child who has rebelled against you, to the sibling that has robbed you, to the job that's taken advantage of you, to the boss who overworks you, to the employees that have stolen from you. Will you just go and be the sent one because you want people to know that someone greater is here? The sent one asks this man to trust and obey, and he does. And then notice, finally, the world's blind confusion. And this blind confusion is comical. Because at the end of it, the guy is gone. He comes back seeing. He goes into the temple. And now everybody's having a debate. And I love it. Some are like, isn't that, isn't that him? Isn't that Jim? Jim was a, there, there's a number of guys, and I, I do this with my daughter. So there's a number of guys that, that uh, panhandle on intersections in our city. And, and I've tried to get to know the names, and I'm viciously bad with names. I, have to say, I will remember faces. There are so many of you that I know your face. I don't know your name. Now, in Newfoundland, it's great because you can say buddy, missus, all that. Can, I can get away with it for days and not have to out myself that I don't know your name. But for my, my daughter and I, as I try to teach, I just name everybody a James. And, and we'll say James this and James that. So the, disciple, the disciples, the, the temple people are like, wasn't that James? Isn't that James that was out there begging? And some people, well, it looks like him. It can't be him, though, because this dude can see. Like nobody thought this. And I love it. Have you ever experienced this where you're in a room like this one and people are talking and you're there and they're talking about you as if you're not there? And, and you, you want to go like, hello, like I'm right here. Like, sometimes spouses do this. I've seen, like, a husband and his wife are there, and there's a group of ladies, and she's talking, and she's talking for her husband as if he's not there. And then the husband looks like, I'm here. Like, I'm right here. And so this guy's like, guys, I'm here. Ask me. I am. I'm Jimmy. I'm the guy. And they go, well, how do you see? 
And he's like, all I know is the Messiah came. He put mud on my eyes, told me to go wash. I did, and now I can see. And then they're like, well, who? show us who Jesus is. And I, I don't know. I've never seen him. My dad used to quote his dad, and he would say, Stephen, there are none so blind as who, those who don't want to see. And then he would follow that up closely with, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. What is the problem with a blind eyes versus a blind heart? Jesus, only a little while ago during the Feast of Tabernacles, said, I am the light of the world. This man was sent to the pool of, of Siloam in faith. He obeyed, came back with his sight. And if you read the rest of the chapter, he goes from blind, congenitally blind, to seeing. If you look at verse 17, you'll see a little preview, because there he calls Jesus a prophet, then a little further in verse 25, he defends himself and Jesus, okay, against the charges of the Pharisees, I may add. And then look at verse 27, he's now a witness for Jesus. In other words, he's an evangelist. Hey, do you want to know him? I once was blind, now I see. Do you want to know him? That's what he does in verse 27. But now, in verse 34, he becomes a theologian because he says, who else can heal someone born blind except the Messiah? So now he's a theologian. But it's not until you get to verse 38 when he's in front of Jesus and Jesus says, what happened and who did this? And he goes, I don't know, but Jesus did it. Will you show him to me? And then Jesus says, I am he and he worships Christ. And it's not till verse 38. He testifies. He witnesses. He's a theologian. But it's not until verse 38 that he worships. Now contrast that with verses 7 to 12. They not only reject Jesus, they reject anyone connected to Jesus. It's the classic case of the blind see, but the seeing are blind. And so... Watch how all this transpires. Some said it's he, others said, no, it's like him. And look at the stir this kicks up. Neighbors can't agree, they argue. And I love this, they're arguing, and the four fellows just like, I'm right here. Friends, do you see now, more than ever, what John is doing? Andreas Kostenberger says, more than a mere miracle, this sign represents a highly symbolic display of Jesus' ability to cure spiritual blindness. This story makes clear that the only sin against which there is no remedy is spiritual pride that claims to see while being, in fact, blind. Redeemer, do you act like you can see when, in fact, you're blind. What do I learn from Jesus in this passage? What do I learn by myself in this passage? Jesus, this passage tells us the answer to this third question. God is glorified when his grace and mercy are displayed. God is glorified when people see and recognize Jesus. God is glorified when one sinner comes to Christ. When our brother comes up here and testifies, heaven worships. And so should we, whether it's a man or a woman, young or old, an addict, if it's someone that's been divorced and remarried a dozen times, whether it's been someone who's lost a job, someone who's just been released from prison, whether it's the most influential CEO in Aurelia, it doesn't matter who they are, where they come from, they were all blind, but now they see. And do we rejoice equally? And do we see them as equals? 
And do we want all of that represented right here? And if you say yes to that, buckle up, because that gets messy and awkward. And it's going to push you out of your comfort zone. Is it any wonder that Our writer would say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Will you cry today, Jesus? Will you respond today to his grace and mercy? Will you bring him your pride, your anger, your bitterness, your prejudices? Will you bring him, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to see Redeemer grow and plant cities, but, but, but. Will you give him all the strings that are attached to your desires? I go to the doctor all the time and I'm telling him or her, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I know something's wrong with me because I feel this way. And then I listen to him or her and she prescribes the way to correct it. When was the last time you went to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm here, I'm hurting, I'm angry, I'm afraid, I'm anxious, I'm, I'm, I, I question you, I don't know what's wrong, I just know I'm in pain and I hurt. And Jesus says, Awesome. Give it to me. I paid for it all. Now read the word and I will prescribe your medicine. Do you trust him? But too often as Christians, we pray to God, we describe this, and God gives us the prescription, and we act like so many of us have acted during COVID. I'm going to go get a second opinion. Only trust him. Only trust him. He lived for you. He died for you. He knows how you feel. He knows everything about you. He created you. He became like you. Then he lived for you. He died for you. He can redeem you and promises to keep you and intercede for you and be there for you. Christians, have you forgotten that reality? George Mueller said in the 1800s, men and women are perishing in our time without the gospel and without Christ. They fill our cities and our countryside. They are poor, the lonely, the outcasts of society. The need is there, and who will reach them? Will you? Do you feel that you must work? Jesus felt it, and as a result, was a blessing to all who knew him. What have we done to be a blessing to those who are in need? And so, may we be like Spurgeon who said, if men must die and go to hell, may they go crawling over us as we cling to them around the ankles. John Calvin said this, when we tend toward a harsher judgment of others suffering than our own, if my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God, but if God chases me with a heavier stroke, I wink at my sins. If we wish to be candid judges in these matters, let us learn to be quick in discerning our own evils rather than those of others. So do you see others as a theological discussion? Or the old Steve Green song is still right. People need the Lord. Every day we pass them by. People need the Lord. So are you here and you've got blind eyes? come to Jesus. He can fix that just like that. Are you here this morning and you've had a blind heart to the cost and calling of what it means to live out the gospel? Is this just an event to feel good? Sometimes when we do these things, I want to be like uh, Maximus and Gladiator. Are you not entertained? Or when our brother comes up and does this, will we realize 
and worship God who has taken someone who was dead and made them alive. And now he says, I'm his child. And he will be with this brother for eternity. And you and I are his family. And that is the hope that we want all 30 to 40,000 people of Aurelia to hear. Do you? Will you? Are you? Let's pray. Almighty God, I beg of you that these men and women have heard a better sermon than I could preach. Lord, they have given of their time and their energy to travel through the snow. Lord, they have busy lives, but oh God, would you help us to be still and know that you are God. As we now join with our brother, as we hear of his testimony, may we not be like the disciples and those in the temple where we see him purely as a religious paradigm. But rather, may we see the unmitigated mercy and grace and love of Christ, and may it stir us. May we go back and remember our salvation and our baptism. And if there's one man or one woman here, and this morning they're like, you know what, I don't know Christ. I don't know him the way Steve talked about. Lord, give them a sense of security and safety to come talk to me or to Levi or to someone that's in this church and say, I want to know Jesus. I need healing. I need my heart to see. And may we with joy and exuberance and confidence in the gospel share that here and with others this week. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless your Redeemer. Thank you.